This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The Great Recession started in the United States, but certainly had impact in countries around the globe. Earlier this week, we looked at the various sectors that either played a role in the recession or were impacted by it. And many of those areas are still dealing with the impact. But it's also a great teaching moment for businesses, governments, and educators, especially as we reach the 10th anniversary of the crisis. Jeffrey Garrett is dean here at the Wharton School, as well as a professor of management and private enterprise, and also a political science professor here at the University of Pennsylvania. He hosted a lecture series yesterday looking back 10 years after the crisis. The lecture included an amazing group of Wharton grads who have seen firsthand impact of the Great Recession, and a pleasure to have Dean Garrett joining us here in the studio. Thanks for your time today. My real pleasure to be here. So back in 2007, 2008, you would have been in Australia at that time uh, teaching. What was that time frame like for you? Yeah, so I'd actually, you know, um, timing is everything in life. I'd returned to Australia, my native country, from the U.S. to set up an institute on the U.S. And, you know, that was early 2008 I got there. So everything was about the presidential election. Uh, This was the rise of Barack Obama. But then suddenly this tsunami thing happened, the fall of Lehman Brothers on the 15th of September, you know, the the anniversary that we're celebrating. And the remarkable thing in a Australia, I think it's fair to say, is this is a country literally halfway around the world with one of the most tightly regulated banking sectors in the world and a banking sector which, with much less exposure to Wall Street, let's say, than the European banks had. Sure. But even in Australia, the crisis was immediate. Credit markets froze in Australia almost overnight. And there was a, a famous weekend in Australia. I think it's one weekend, literally only one weekend after the famous meeting in the US, what are we going to do about Lehman Brothers, yeah. where the Australian government was saying, oh, my God, the Australian credit market has frozen. What are we going to do? Yeah. So that showed me that the crisis was was both global and instantaneous. It was extraordinary. It, it is kind of surprising to me that I think it, at times people just assume it as a U.S. element. And, and as we've laid out and you just laid out, that there were so many different pieces around the globe that were touched by this because of, of the breadth of companies like Lehman Brothers. Yeah, and and you know, you look um if you, if you read the some of the books on the crisis one of the things that's really clear is that European banks, big European banks, were playing a pretty buccaneering role on Wall Street because they were looking for higher rates of return. And sure. they thought some of this financial innovation in the US was providing that higher rate of return. The fascinating thing about Australia was that that was largely not true of the Australian banks. They right. were hermetically sealed in a, in a protected domestic market. And even there, this effect was instantaneous and massive, which means that another concept like contagion becomes very, very important. And and contagion might sound irrational, but I don't think it is irrational because it's all about the expectations of the market. And Australians were worried that something that was happening, you know, a, a, a housing credit crisis in the U.S., metastasizes into a global financial crisis and a global recession, of course investors in Australia are worried about that, yeah. even if it even if it's not directly touching Australian banks. How long was there an impact, or is there still, like we say, that we still see elements of it here today in the U.S., how long was the impact in Australia? Well, I mean, the first thing to say about Australia is that, like the U.S., there was an immediate and massive 
monetary and fiscal stimulus in response to the crisis, Um, coordinated by the G20, which I think is another thing we kind of forget today. You know, in a world in which we're putting up barriers to international collaboration, back then there was instantaneous and I think essential coordination of fiscal and monetary policies all around the world, including Australia. So that's a long-winded way of saying that Australia actually avoided recession. Australia hasn't had a recession for more than 25 years. But that was only because of the scale and scope of the response, which, as as I said, again, in retrospect, the remarkable thing about that is how effectively internationally coordinated it was. So, yes, there was a response in the U.S., the the so-called TARP, immediately in 2008. But by early 2009, the G20, at that time hosted, I think, by Gordon Brown in the U.K., led a global stimulus in response. And, And it wasn't only Australia. You think about a country like China. China did this massive infrastructure stimulus. Again, it wasn't their credit markets that were affected, but they thought they had to respond, and they responded in an enormous way. So, yes, we've had a less strong recovery. You know, it's been not the V-shaped recovery that the U.S. and the world economy were used to. Um, But I think it, you know... On the one hand, thank God the responses were as strong as they were because we averted a second depression. Yeah. But I think there is an enormous overhang in at least two areas. The first overhang is with respect to stagnant incomes. And I think that stagnant incomes, in essence, in the decade after the financial crisis, I'm a bit of an economic determinist. I think that populism, yes, there are a lot of other elements in the populist surge that we're seeing, but I think stagnant incomes post-crisis are a big part of that story. Sure. So, yeah. so that that's an overhang for me. Um, and and the other one is just this is the fact that. We fired all the bullets, right? Debt is a big issue in the U.S. Getting interest rates back to a so-called normal level, a big issue. Why? Because we fired every um, fiscal and monetary bullet we had. How do we reload for the next crisis? Still a challenge. Well, then that brings me to my next question, is that as, as large and impactful as 2008 was, do you think that we have learned enough in the years since to be able to avoid that type of a crisis. Well, of course, that type of crisis, yes. So what does that mean? I mean, you know, one big story, obviously, um, is the increased regulation on banks yep. all around the world. Yep. What has that, what has one potentially unintended consequence of that been? Uh, it's been the rise of alternative investments and shadow banking. So, you know, we have, um, we have obviously <laughs> yeah. lots of people uh, in private equity at the Wharton School. Blackstone, a private equity company now, is a massive real estate player. Apollo, private equity company, massive insurance player. Uh, both of those firms are now in the credit business. Um, that's all been possible, I think, because there's just been much much more scrutiny, much more regulation, much higher requirements on 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 what was viewed as the problem back there, uh-huh. i.e. traditional finance. Well, one consequence of that has been a decade of the rise of alternative investment. Alternative investment has led to higher rates of return, but you know, we have to ask the question, when does the alternative investment a couple of things from alternatives one is when does it get too big that it becomes something for us to worry about and the second thing in terms of retail investors is you know it's easy for 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 you and I to invest in the public markets it's really hard for us to invest in private markets yeah. how do we give regular people access to alternative investments i think that's still a challenge 10 years after the crisis i i think when you look back at that time and obviously in the wake and, and everything that went on with with the various banking institutions investment institutions 
institutions. A, a lot of people still have have a, a question as to why there was not more pressure used by the government, by the U.S. government, to bring some of these people really to task for a lot of the elements that that they had been involved in. Yeah, I, and and that that's a, that's a really important story, obviously. But but I think we've got to remember the history here, and the, and the history is that in the late 1990s, it was Larry Summers under Bill Clinton, the president, that bailed out long-term capital management. Yeah. Right, that was a hedge early hedge fund that that uh, fell on hard times, and not only did um, Larry Summers at Treasury bail out long-term capital, but he said, we need more innovation in finance. Yeah. And and by the way, I think he was right about that because, you know, again, for, for your retirement account and for my retirement account, we all need higher rates of return in sure. our retirement accounts in, a, in an environment in which we think public markets aren't generating that. So that's why we need innovation. But on the other hand, of course, innovation comes with risks. Yeah. And, that, and that's what we saw several years later. So, so I, you know, it's easy to point to villains. Um, yeah. In this story, I think we need to look a little more structurally and systemically, and you see a lot of stuff. I mean, think about the other side of this, housing. What yeah. what the U.S. Congress was pushing was increased access to housing yep. for people of lower means. What does that mean? More credit risks in mortgages. Yeah. Yes, the mortgage companies took advantage of that, but there was a push to increase housing access. What could be more laudable than that? We're talking with uh, Dean Jeffrey Garrett of the Wharton School. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Uh, there's an article on the Knowledge at Wharton website right now, and, and it's titled, Is the Global Financial System Safer? How, how do you respond to that? Um, my answer would be, yes, it's safer. Um, and and then so that'd be the one line. If you go to the one paragraph version, I would say the traditional finance system is much better regulated than it was before the crisis. One could argue about whether it's overregulated. So yeah. in the U.S., we have Dodd Frank. Um, at the G20 level, we have Financial Stability Board. You know, there there have been big changes made that were potentially overdue. Um, does that mean that the global system is safe? Well, we're not so sure because, you know, let's say in the US, uh, as I already mentioned, we've had a rise of what we might call shadow banking or alternative investments, which is less regulated. Yeah. Um, think about other big potential financial risks to the system, um, debt that's sitting on state-owned enterprises and local governments in China, Right. That wasn't the cause of the crisis, but if you were looking at financial stress in the international system today, a lot of people point to problems on the Chinese balance sheet as something that we should all be concerned about. It'd be very hard to regulate that out of New York or Washington. How, how much then is there an impact potentially of what goes on in Europe in general? I mean, you're still talking about a European Union where you have a group of 26, 27 countries, yet they still have all different thought processes a yeah. lot of times on monetary policy. You still have some issues in Greece and, and other locations, and you also have the onset of Brexit as well. Yeah, so, I mean, lots to unpack there, but I think from the beginning – you know, the, to say two things about the creation of the euro. First, the euro was created not for economic reasons, but for political reasons. Yeah. And the economic challenge was how do we minimize the economic costs of this political reality called the euro? Um, so that's the first observation. Second observation is that Europe centralized monetary policy when they created the euro, but not fiscal policy. Yeah. And of course, we live with the consequences of that. You know, they used to have uh, debt 
ceiling, debt and deficit ceilings in the EU, which was designed to punish countries like Italy. Yeah. But then Germany violated the budget ceiling, and you know, then all bets are off, right? Yeah. Whether you can have coordinated fiscal and monetary policy when monetary policy is sitting at the euro level and fiscal policy is sitting at the national level. And that's a structural problem preceded the crisis. It's still there 10 years after the crisis. Ben Bernanke is obviously one of the central figures in this country in monetary policy, at the, working with the Federal Reserve. How do you look back at his time of running that uh, that entity, especially with all that was going on here in the United States at that time? Yeah, I mean, I I think any fair rendering has to say Bernanke did an excellent job. Yeah. Why? Because the proof of the pudding is in the eating. The U.S. Yeah. recovered and we didn't go into a second depression. But if I went a little deeper on Bernanke, I think I'd say two other things about him. The first one is that, you know, by training, he's an economist, but he was an economic historian who studied the depression. So he knew that the I think he knew, um, even if ideologically he wasn't on the left, he knew that coordinated, expansionary, radically expansionary macroeconomic policy was the thing that had to be done. Uh -huh. um, that might have happened without him, but he knew it because he saw that when that didn't happen in the Depression, problems got worse, right? Things got bad. You did belt tightening. You should have done belt loosening. That, that, that's a simple um, lesson of the Depression. Second, uh, second thing he did from the Depression was to say, after the Depression, we economies closed. We had big tariffs and we had to fight really hard against protectionism after 2008. I think it was successful, not only in the US, but internationally. Right. The last thing I'd say about Bernanke is he had this expression, savings glut. And savings glut meant that, you know, there was going to be a lot of cheap money in the system in the U.S. and around the world, yeah. not because of monetary policy, but because of the incredible savings in China in particular, China and Japan, but yeah. the new player was China. This glut of new savings from China, which was being injected into the Western financial system, I and mean, that was cheap money. So, of course, as a lot of people in finance would say, when the money is cheap, you've got to borrow it. You know, this old expression, we, if, if the music's still playing, you've got to keep dancing. Right, right. There was a lot of that going on at the time. And, and you know, think otherwise. If, if, if bankers had been more prudent, if they're not borrowing when interest rates are at historic lows, they're going to be criticized for that, too. So then how do you also uh, look at Mario Draghi as well, who took, to a degree, a page out of the U.S. playbook yeah. in thinking about QE for what was going on in Europe over the last yeah, few and, years. Yeah, you know, and 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 Draghi, obviously, uh, you know, because of the confederal nature of the EU, has a much harder political job. Yeah, and it, it's a harder economic job too because coordination with fiscal policy is is much more difficult. Yeah. Then the third thing you'd say about Europe is it was just less likely that. It was more likely that the recovery would be slower in Europe because there were already structural problems in Euro in most European economies. Having said that, you know I know Draghi still gets criticised a lot for being too slow to act, not being decisive enough. I, I, I think again the fact that despite all of these big structural problems in Europe, and we've only mentioned the biggest one, which is the mismatch between fiscal and monetary policy. Um, Big structural problems in Europe that were there before the crisis, they're still there after the crisis, but Europe didn't go into a tailspin, and I think he deserves some credit for that. We're joined by uh, Dean uh, Jeffrey Garrett of the Wharton School. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. One of the topics we, we discussed during our specials was ethics and leadership. Mm -hmm. And obviously ethics it has to be a central 
topic when you're talking about what went on here yeah. because a lot of decisions were made that obviously ended up not being of an ethical nature. So when you talk about ethics, which is something that is very important to you and very important yeah. here to the Wharton School, how do you take the issue of ethics moving forward when it's one thing to be able to teach it when you're in the in the classroom yeah. situ- setting here. It's another thing to live it out in the business world when there are certainly much different pressures that are put on people. Yeah, that, and look, this is obviously an incredibly important topic. So I would actually divide it into two components. The first one is what we might really call something like the ethical compass. Um can can we at a place like Wharton help students think through what their responsibilities are, what their right. social responsibilities are? I think the answer to that is yes, and I think we do it. Second, uh, having an ethical compass, if you're a leader, you've got to be able to transmit that to a whole organization. Do we do a good job with leadership here? I think the answer is yes. Yeah. But then there's then there's structural stuff that really matters. So what was the what was the biggest criticism i think at the time the criticism was yes all these people in finance are innovating but they bear none of the downside risk yeah so what have we done subsequently well i think there's been a lot of research and a lot of action to tie executive compensation and board compensation not to tomorrow's share price but to the long run stock price right yeah. so so we've made uh, performance more aligned with long t- personal performance compensation much better aligned with long-term performance of your company right. that's a plus but there's still this structural reality which is that finance professionals don't personally bear the downside risk yeah. um, of a collapse in the in the financial system which of course is why so many people in society say hey they've got to go to jail if they can't pay the financial price they've got to go to jail but then I go full circle on this which is you and I absolutely need people in finance to be innovative, sure. to take yeah. risks, yeah. because we need them to generate higher rates of return on our retirement nest eggs, because we want them to be bigger, not smaller, when we retire. And the percentage of success when you take that risk in comparison to the percentage of loss ends up being what at this point? Well, the the the... I mean, the, what, we're, what we're seeing right now, I mean, there's a remarkable story I read uh, on BlackRock, right? So BlackRock yeah. is, you know, la- large passive in, largest passive investor in the world, maybe with uh, Vanguard. Then they've got a bunch of active funds that are publicly traded, and now they're talking about getting into private equity. Why do they want to get into private equity? Because they think there's too much money chasing too few opportunities in public markets. Yeah. So if BlackRock goes into private equity, that tells you how powerful this world of alternatives is. But I see two core things about alternatives that you know are problematic from a societal standpoint. The first one is liquidity, right? In, in regular financial markets, we need liquidity. Yep. The whole point in private equity is if you and I are investors, we just have to sit on the sidelines and for five years to wait for a return. We, can't, we don't have a draw on, on our invested capital. That's a big deal. How many people can really live in that world? Yeah. And then the second one is just the entry barriers to uh, to not publicly traded stuff. How do regular individuals get there? So, so I think the you know I, my broad take would be that there's actually been a lot of financial innovation after the crisis, which has helped with growth, helped with returns. We just don't see it as much in the publicly traded markets. And maybe ironically, that's one consequence of things like Dodd-Frank. It's moved money 
maybe unsurprisingly, into less regulated parts of the financial system and less accessible parts of the financial yeah. system for, for everyday investors. Right, because a lot of those companies will still be looking for those avenues, no matter you know which path they take. It's it's just making sure as much as you can that we are staying on top of of a lot of the potential problems that are yeah, out there. Yeah, and, and again, I think that you know the, the 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 fact that BlackRock wants to get into private equity tells you something. Yeah, and the fact that the fact that the big private equity companies do much more than leverage buyouts these days. You know, yeah. Apollo in insurance, Black Blackstone in real estate. Now both of them are talking about becoming a big players in corporate credit, for example. Right, those are functions that we that ten years ago we didn't associate with private equity. Yeah. Private equity is been so successful that its reach has expanded dramatically. How much do you think analytics can play or could play a role in in starting to diagnose some of these potential problems as we move down the road? Well, of, of course, that is the potential of analytics that, you know, that in essence, you can have blinking red on some dashboard in advance if we get the metrics right. And I think there's real promise there. Of course, there's, there's also a risk to... Um, you know, follow the index kind of moves in investment, you know, passive investment may be turbocharged by algorithms, um, which is that no one's making active decisions. It's very much a follow the leader. So, you know, in in econometrics, we'd call that a random walk. You could have a random walk through the markets. Um, the, The there is a scenario, a kind of doomsday scenario that says no one is watching. So so crises could spiral out of control more the more index funds, the more follow the leader behavior we have. But then, you know, I hear people like my friend Bill, uh, Bill McNabb, who recently uh, retired as CEO of Vanguard, say, listen, yeah, Vanguard's become very big in, in uh, index funds, ETFs, but we're still a tiny proportion of the market. So don't worry about us yeah. as a systemic risk. We're actually managing risk at very low cost for all of our investors. You know, it's interesting. When we were talking uh, earlier in the week, uh, the, the cycles uh, of recessions, uh, I was told, it was like five and a half, six years. And we're kind of moving now 10, 10 yeah. and a half, 11 years. With all that is going on economically with the country and globally as mm-hmm. well, do you feel like we are getting closer and closer to another recession? Well, you know, as as you just said, the clock is ticking. So almost by definition, yes, we're getting closer. Yeah. But if you go a little analytical about it, I think the 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 investment professionals that I talk to say two things. First, listen, most assets are expensive. Um, you know, they they just look expensive to us, so we don't see a lot of good good new investments. Yeah. That tells us that the system is probably vulnerable to some kind of correction. The question yeah. is whether it's a correction or a crisis, and that also means that all else equal, a smaller event could have a, could have a bigger precipitating impact. Yeah. Um, you know, so what what would those events potentially be? You know, the the Britain's got to come or doesn't come to a Brexit deal in in the next little while. You know, could 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 no Brexit or a hard Brexit really roil the global markets? Yeah. You know, I think not yeah. because I've always thought that we were going to have something like a Brexit in name only, right? So there's a formal deal, but in fact, not so much changes. Well, the markets have probably already priced that in. Um, Have they priced in uh, the increasing fragility of the Chinese markets? I think probably yes, because Chinese investors, people with assets in China, have been trying to get the money out of the country for maybe 10 years. Um, I don't think people... I, I don't think the markets have priced in 
because they don't know yet the scale of the US-China rift. You know, yeah. the, these are the two largest economies in the world. They're incredibly interdependent. The rhetoric of the Trump administration and the logic of the Trump administration says we really should unwind a lot of our connections with China because we think the Chinese economy, the whole structural basis of the Chinese economy is unfair. Yeah. If that was to happen, that's a big deal. But again, I look at the interconnections between the US and China and I say it can't happen right. because the stakes are just too high. So, you know, I'm not predicting I'm not predicting uh, either the timing or the cause of a downturn. But if we go back to that first premise that assets are at historically high prices, of course you're vulnerable to a downturn yeah. on maybe a relatively small and, and unexpected event. Dean Garrett, thanks very much for your time today. Greatly appreciate it. My pleasure. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 